Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night to all my fellow travelers. This is me, Dr. Stu. I'm solo today because Bliss is halfway around the world, literally, in Bali, hopping from island to island, and I'm about to leave in a few hours to go to Haiti to teach breach with Mama Baby Haiti. And so we're kind of at opposite ends of the timing spectrum and coordinating with that, and sometimes crappy Wi-Fi has left me little option but to record an episode by myself. I'm going to miss uh, Bliss's, obviously, humor and insight, but I have so much in my mind attic that needs clearing out, so I thought I'd start with what just happened to me this morning, the day I'm about to leave to catch a flight from St. George, Utah, through Salt Lake City to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and on to Cap Haitian, Haiti. My sponsor, Rebecca, texted me this morning telling me, oh, yeah, by the way, you need to have a COVID test to get into Haiti. Uh, well, I'm in a small town, and fortunately, I actually did find a pharmacy that ran the test. And to much to everybody's relief, I'm negative, which, of course, I knew ahead of time. But that's not what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the stupidity of, in this day and age, still demanding COVID tests on people entering countries I, yeah, I, I don't even have to get into it. We don't. I don't need one to come back to the United States. I don't generally need one to travel to Europe. But Haiti, not sure how hard it was hit with COVID or whatever else. But the idea that a uh, that doing that is still something that in this day and age, when we know that COVID tests are stupid, that the vaccine is stupid, that the masking and all that other stuff is stupid, it's just a funny way to start my day and got me riled up enough that I felt like I should probably go online right now and record a podcast. So this is going to be a podcast where I'm sort of getting into some things. And then I'm going to get into some letters from some of you listeners and give you my opinion. And if any of them, after Bliss listens to the podcast, decides she wants to chime in, maybe we can edit that in or add it into a future podcast. Okay. So the first bit of good news is, however, I think I mentioned a while back that I have been bothered by the California Medical Board for the last two and a half years over a Facebook post celebrating a VBAC after two home twin breech vertex vaginal delivery. It was a sweet little post with permission from the family. The, the twin trolls came out. Somebody made an anonymous complaint to the medical board, which of course the medical board then had to give to an expert to decide whether this was a case worth pursuing. And this is where my aggravation and my frustration and anger lie, is that this expert then just rubber stamped what the medical board wanted to do. He didn't do any investigation because in his own declaration, he says things like, well, we don't really know how he practices or how he counsels patients or what things he uses. And so I think it should be investigated. Now, if he had said, this is a Facebook post, there's nothing here, medical board, go away, then none of this would have happened. And I wouldn't have been out almost $15,000 in legal fees over the last two and a half years. But he didn't do that. And he didn't do any homework because everything that he was questioning is actually online. It's online on my website. It's online in the three papers that I published, how I practice, what criteria I use. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm probably going to take a deep breath and let it go like some of my advisors tell me to do and just spread love rather than aggravation. But this guy, this kind of stuff goes on all the time. These guys get paid fairly well from the medical board to review cases. And if they review a case and tell the medical board there isn't anything there, they're less likely to get another review next time. So what they are are rubber stamps. And what they do is they pass, they cause misery to people who don't deserve it. So maybe you guys can chime in and tell me, should I go after this guy? Should I leave it alone? What should I do? But nonetheless, I got a letter from the medical board dated February 10th that says, form letter, by the way, RE Anonymous, dear doctor, this is to advise you the Medical Board of California has concluded its investigation of the above complaint received against you. No further action is anticipated at this time, and the complaint file has been closed. Thank you for your cooperation in this matter. Sincerely, Scribble from the Medical Board of California, illegible handwriting. So what's interesting is that a 
they write this form letter saying, thank you for your cooperation. Well, at no time did I ever cooperate. We fought them at every turn about, they didn't even know who the patient was. And they wanted us to uh, turn over her name, which we felt was a violation of her rights. She didn't want them to know who she was. She'd want nothing to do with them. So eventually we got resolved. And so that's a good thing. I, I texted my lawyer that I got some good news and they hadn't even told my lawyer. They, they just sent me this form letter. And had I not been home or had it got lost in the mail, I never would have known. My lawyer sent me back a message saying, no, this isn't good news. This is great news. So he's thrilled that it's over. And uh, so I'll just, I'll leave it at that. But that's just one of those things. Okay. So we can talk a little bit about that's a government entity. And right now, I think that there's a total collapse in our, our trust uh, in science and in government. And we can say that because in the past couple of weeks, there's been articles coming out. Naomi Wolf did an interview talking about menstrual irregularities from the COVID vaccine. Uh, a Cochrane review just came out. Cochrane has essentially been for decades the premier literature review organization. They came out saying that masks were useless. Uh, the Wall Street Journal came out with a paper, you probably all heard about it by now, that said the lab leak theory was not a conspiracy theory, was probably the, not even probably, was the cause. You know, as John Stewart likes to say, they've got a novel coronavirus outbreak in a town that has a novel coronavirus research lab, but we're going to blame it on a pangolin. So uh, that's just another thing. We've got natural immunity, a paper that just came out saying natural immunity is better than vaccine immunity, despite what the CDC was telling us over and over again for the first time in human history, that a vaccine generated immunity was better than uh, natural immunity, which has never been true for any infection of any kind. Uh, they lie to us. They've been lying to us right and left. They investigate things that don't need to be investigated. They, the medical board should take its wrath out on the people that forced you to get jabbed to go to work or, or that were promoting that while you're pregnant. Uh, but that's not what's going to happen. We've also seen toxic spills and we've seen food plants going up in flames and chickens dying. And, and there's, there's something very, very strange going on. So I want to say one other thing about when you are trying to get your news on what's going on in the world, um, if it's coming from a government source, it's probably a lie. And when it's a research paper, you really have to do, I used to say that you needed to look at the material and method section, which is the dry part of any paper. You can't just read an abstract and you can't just read the conclusions because it doesn't tell you anything. You have to look at the material and method section. But now you also have to look at who, who sponsored the paper and what are the conflicts of interest that are listed there, because uh, those things are really important. And one other thing that's come to clarity for me lately is, why is this piece of information being published now? Why are we hearing about it now? Is it just coincidence that something comes out at a time when something else was, was distracting us and, we, and it needed to push our attention somewhere, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, look over here, look at the great and powerful Oz? I mean, Sometimes these things come out at a time when, you know, we've common sense people have known it all along and the data that's coming out isn't new, but it's being published now. So, yeah, call me suspicious. But remember what I said once before is that it's not my skepticism that should bother you. It's, it's their certainty. So along that line, I have a article here about the HPV vaccine, and I'm going to pause for just a second to go find my glasses. Much better. That's why I have three pairs of glasses in my house. One downstairs, one upstairs, one in my car, because I'm at that age now where I need glasses periodically for doing certain things and not for other things. So this article called The Truth About HPV Vaccines Part 1, Evidence of Serious Adverse Events in What is Believed to Be One of the Most Effective Vaccines. Believed to be one of the most effective vaccines. And then Mary Holland wrote a book a few years ago called HPV Vaccine on Trial. And for those of you who are considering getting an HPV vaccine or suggesting it for your teenagers, please, please do your digging and research into that. Okay. This, the point of this article is it talks a little bit more about getting the vaccine in girls than boys because it talks about premature ovarian insufficiency or premature ovarian failure. And it goes like this. The decline of public trust in COVID-19 vaccines significantly impacts vaccination rates against routine childhood diseases. In the United States, the HPV vaccine was reported to have a disproportionately higher percentage of adverse events of fainting and blood clots in the veins. 
The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, also known as the FDA, acknowledges that fainting can happen following the HPV vaccine and recommends sitting or lying down to get the shot and then waiting 15 minutes afterwards. I want to make a comment about that because that's true of almost all vaccines, and we've known it to be true about the COVID vaccine. So, because we trust government so much, when you see a government official like President Biden or any other government official roll up their sleeve, get their injection, roll down their sleeve, get up out of their chair and walk away, especially someone who sometimes is as unstable on his feet as President Biden, you have to ask yourself, what did they just inject into his arm? Or did they inject anything at all? Because if it had been the COVID vaccine, there is no way that the Secret Service or his own personal physician would let an 80-year-old guy get up immediately and walk away. So think about that for a second. So the CDC has its Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, and that logged a substantial increase in reports of premature ovarian failure after the HPV vaccine approval. It went from 1.4 per year before 2006 to 22.2 per year. Now, I'm not sure what the denominator is on that, but so that, again, I don't know what, how significant that is, but it is about a, an, ooh, a 15-fold increase, 16-fold increase in premature ovarian failure. They go on to say the HPV vaccine is widely regarded as one of the most effective vaccines developed to date. And of course, in the margin I write, by who? Who thinks it's the most effective vaccine developed to date? Well, we all know who that is. That's the CDC and Big Pharma. I'm not sure the average citizen would know anything about any of that stuff. Uh, and again, when information comes from these people, as we talked about in the very beginning, you can't trust it. So every single person listening needs to do their homework and spread this information to their loved ones that to blindly go with what the government is telling you is to be a fool. It probably has been most of our lives. But now they overplayed their hand, and now it's obvious to everybody that they've been lying to us. In this HPV vaccine series, they explain how the vaccine works and the evidence suggesting that there may be legitimate safety concerns. Large registry-based studies have identified plausible associations between the HPV vaccine and autoimmune conditions, including premature ovarian insufficiency or failure. HPV infection is so common that the majority of sexually active people will get it at some point in their lives. Even if they have only one or very few sexual partners, it can spread through sexual intercourse or oral sex. It can also pass between people through skin-to-skin contact, even by people who have no symptoms. So it's fairly, fairly infectious, uh, HPV. There's multiple, multiple types of HPV. Almost all of them are, are, are self-limiting. You get them one time, your body takes care of it. That's, the same, that's what your body's immune system does. Um, an HPV infection is not the sole risk factor, risk factor to cause cancer, but it is associated, obviously, with cervical and other genital cancers. But in nine out of 10 cases, HPV will go away within two years without causing any health problem at all. The instance of cervical cancer be, can be controlled as a result of implementation of routine testing and screening, including PAP and DNA tests. So, in my opinion, this vaccine came out to prevent you from getting a disease that was already, in first world countries at least, very preventable with routine screening. And yet they pushed it through to make it mandatory on the vaccine schedule. And of course, they pushed it on to all third world countries. Again, it's sort of a vaccine looking for a disease to cure, all right? Because most people don't are never affected by this. And there's been no evidence research into trying to decide who are at high risk and giving it only to high-risk people. No, we're going to give it to all 12-year-olds because all 12-year-olds might be high risk. Again, this thinking can only lead you to one, one place and one place only, um, and that is that it benefits the pharmaceutical companies and pretty much nobody else. On June 8th, 2006, the FDA fast-tracked review, Gardasil was approved for use in females ages 9 to 26 for the prevention of cervical, vulvar, and vaginal cancers. Three years later, on October 16th, 2009, the FDA approved Gardasil for use in boys ages 9 through 26 for the prevention of genital warts caused by HPV type 6 and 11, but not for cancer. By the way, penile cancer, or, or uh, I guess, or squamous cell cancer of the penis is extremely rare. And unlike cervical cancer, generally, if you have something growing weirdly on your penis, you're going to bring it to somebody's attention. Cervical cancer can be more deadly because you can't see it until unless you, you know, go to a gynecologist or, or 
a midwife or a nurse practitioner, and they actually do a pap smear or take a look with a colposcope. Four years later, the FDA approved an updated vaccine, Merck's Gardasil 9, for use in girls ages 9 to 26 and boys ages 9 to 15 for the prevention of cervical, vaginal, and anal cancer. I'll let that sink in for a second. So we're going to give it to all kids age 9 to 26 for girls, 9 to 15 for boys. Think about that, though. But there's about 4 million children born in the, in the U.S. every year. And this is just for the United States, by the way. And what, the, what, what happens in the United States generally will happen in the rest of the world. So that's 4 million people when they reach, people when they reach age 9, right, are going to be new candidates to get a vaccine that probably costs 100 bucks, more than 100 bucks. You do the math. And they want to do it for every single kid. And they want to make it requirement for you to go to school to have this vaccine. What rather than 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 teach you about HPV, teach you how to prevent HPV, teach you that HPV is generally innocuous, teach you about routine screening, those sorts of things. No, we're just going to give everyone a vaccine from from these trusted sources. The vaccine induced antibody levels appear to be ten to a hundred times higher than after natural infection. This gets back to another point that just because you have high antibody levels doesn't necessarily mean you're more immune. So that is a false flag to make it sound like it's doing something good. We just learned in the uh, the COVID boosters that promotes production of an antibody that doesn't kill the virus, something like IgG4 or something like that. So just because they have higher titers doesn't mean anything. The high vaccine effectiveness, 90 to 98% against the fast-growing abnormal cells which may cause precancerous lesions in people ages 16 to 26, suggests that the best timing for vaccination was to give it to patients before they came sexually active. So again, high vaccine effectiveness, doing what? Against fast-growing cells in what? In, there's no reference here. There's no. It doesn't say that there's a paper. Was this cells in a Petri dish? Was it cells in mice? Well, we don't know. And when they say effectiveness, and they say 90% effective, we've all learned that that effectiveness rates fade rapidly. So was this studied like in a month, three months, six months, five years, that sort of thing. VARES between 2006 and 2008, during that time, there were 12,424 reports of adverse events. Now we know that VARES only, only reports between one and 10% of events. So that could be as many as 1.2 million to 120,000 adverse events. Of these 772 or 77,720, were serious. That's quite a few. And a, a disproportionately high percentage of Gardasil virus reports were of syncope, which is fainting, and venous thromboembolic events, blood clots in the veins compared with other vaccines. There were eight syncopal ev events per 100,000 doses, and it looks like 0.2 per 100,000 or one in 500,000 doses gave a thrombotic event. Now, that's not a high risk by my standards, but it also does say that you have to understand what's the risk actually of a woman getting cervical cancer, especially if she's in a low-risk group. And they don't, they don't really care about that stuff. That's not what they're looking at. So in Japan, researchers around the world began to investigate HPV safety, and Japan withdrew its recommendation. A World Health Organization position paper released on July 14th of 2017 concluded that the HPV vaccines were, quote, extremely safe, unquote. I'll just leave silence there. Uh, how many of you trust the WHO? Raise your hand. Okay. In 2014, a peer-reviewed case series describing premature ovarian failure among Australian women followed HPV vaccination, following, was published in the Journal of Investigative Medicine. This prompted other research to systemically examine the VAERS data to see if there was a connection between premature ovarian failure and Gardasil. Their study found a potentially safe signal, unquote, and concluded that further investigations are warranted. The dose tolerance recommendations were based on an average weight of 50 kilograms for an adolescent girl, but failed to take into account that HPV-4 is administered to girls ages 9 to 13, who range in weight from 28 to 46 kilograms. Again, this is one of those same things where I've always wondered when, you know, hepatitis vaccine given to a newborn baby is the same dose, I believe, that you'd give to a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old. Uh, I don't know why they do that, because when it comes to antibiotics, they for children, they do it by weight, but not for toxins. A 2021 study also evaluated premature ovarian insufficiency in a nationwide cohort of nearly 1 million Danish females ages 11 to 34. 
Um, they, however, concluded that there was no association found between the two. Okay, so I did present that last sentence because there is a debate out there as to what's legitimate and what's not legitimate information. But for me, it's it's a risk benefit thing. I have been treating women with HPV my entire career, and women who seek fairly routine GYN care. And by routine, I don't mean annual exams. I mean, based on individualized histories. Women who have never had sex really don't need a pap smear. Women who have had normal pap smears in a monogamous relationship probably don't need pap smears regularly anymore. Uh, Women over 40 who are in a monogamous relationship don't need pap smears. And yet, most obstetricians will have you coming back once a year for your annual pap smear. You'll get your little reminder in the mail. And that's because that's what was recommended and may still be recommended by the powers that be like ACOG or the CDC. And it doesn't make any sense, but does create revenue. So again, my skepticism is out there for all of you to see. I'm not going to try to hide it from anybody. I'm open to comments where people might think differently. I know that sometimes routine things will save lives. There's no question about that. The question is at what cost and what false positives and what stress and uh, other problems you're adding by by screening everybody all the time. Is it cost effective in an era or a time when you know healthcare costs are soaring and you know Medicare is supposed to become insolvent in the next decade? Maybe we should rethink these things. But of course, if the money and the people in power want something done that way, it's going to be very hard to change. I, another story that goes along with that story that I'll just go over briefly is a story that came out in on my internet feed, and it says the CDC knowingly left serious adverse events off post-vaccination surveys. And this has bothered me for a while. I've had this in my pile for about six weeks. And I'll summarize it just saying that the CDC put out their vSafe app for people getting the COVID vaccine. And they didn't include serious adverse events like heart inflammation on the surveys. There was no place in the app to fill out anything. They were all things like localized reaction, fever, achiness, that sort of thing. But any major side effect, it wasn't listed there. So I'll just read a little bit about that. November 19th protocol for vSafe, the survey system, lists myocarditis, stroke, death, and dozens pre-specified medical conditions. The protocol was obtained by the Informed Consent Action Network, that's the Highwire and Dell Bigtree's organization, The vSafe is a system of surveys that was introduced in the COVID-19 pandemic to monitor vaccine safety. It was developed and is managed by the CDC. A lot of confidence there. Updated versions of the protocol list the same 15 adverse events. None of the conditions, however, were included in the actual surveys. Respondents could check boxes if they experienced certain symptoms, but only 10 lower-level problems such as fever and nausea were listed. It is deeply troubling that the CDC would construct vSafe in a manner that does not permit it to be easily to be able to easily assess the rate of harm from adverse events the CDC has already identified as potentially being caused by these products, said Aaron Siri, the lawyer for ICANN. This calls into question what the CDC was really trying to accomplish with vSafe. Was it trying to assess the actual safety of these products? Or was it trying to design a system that would be more likely to affirm its previous public pronouncements regarding the safety of these products? Users were asked how they felt, whether they had a fever, their temperature, and common symptoms. They were also asked whether they were unable to go to work or go about daily activities and whether they needed medical care. About 10 million people signed up through July 31st of 2022. The CDC has described the results of vSAPE in multiple studies, but they refused to release the raw data until ICANN brought litigation against it. Data released to ICANN in October of last year showed that more than 3.2 million people sought medical attention or missed school, work, or other normal activities following vaccination. Let's think about that for a second. Now, maybe I got the numbers wrong, but they said about 10 million people signed up and about 3.2 million people sought medical attention or missed school, work, or other normal activities following vaccination. If I do my math correctly, that would be 32%. VSafe users could report the serious adverse events, but only if they wrote them out in a free text field. The prompt was, any other symptoms or health conditions you want to report? The CDC has resisted releasing the results from the field. The CDC instead offered to review all the entries and convert them into medical codes, according to the filing. Ask yourself, why would they do that? Why would you not release their information? It's our information, by the way. The CDC collects this stuff with taxpayer dollars. Why are they doing that? That's rhetorical.
Okay. Real quickly, uh, before we get to some letters and some words from our sponsors, I just want to let you know what kind of things I get in my email, being that I'm still related to ACOG and some of these other groups. And when I got a thing from um, uh, ACOG regarding CME for confidence training in counseling. So it's called Inform to Empower, Building COVID-19 Vaccine Confidence One Conversation at a Time. Training highlights include evidence-based, evidence-based, right? Patient communication strategies such as motivational interviewing, techniques for dispelling myths and misinformation. You, You know what I'm going to say here. All the misinformation is coming from the CDC, but that's not the misinformation they want, ACOG wants you to dispel. Tips for creating a culture of vaccine confidence among the staff and peers. So ACOG's got that training course. I've mentioned that before. They've got new coding compliance courses that you can take. Coding is for how you get paid if you don't are on a cash basis. And, you know, sometimes these are free. Sometimes they cost money. They're sponsored by the government. And the learning objectives will be to, one, understand billing coding process, two, No denials management process, three, review Medicare program integrity, four, comprehensive error rate testing program, five, no Medicare administrative contractors, six, to understand recovery audit contractors, seven, to review zone program integrity contractors, eight, to review supplemental medical review contractor, nine, to review medical integrity program, Medicaid integrity program, to learn HIPAA, to learn anti-kickback law, to learn the Stark law, to learn EMTALA law, to know about false claims, to review QUITAM, whatever QUITAM is, um, can you, my solo individual practitioners out there who want to take insurance uh, or are forced to take insurance or work for a company that is taking insurance, do you understand that you're supposed to know all this stuff? Okay. Nothing here about how to treat a woman with uh, menstrual irregularities, nothing with how to treat uh, an adolescent with acne, <laughs> but you will know about Medi- Medicare administrative contractors and the anti-kickback law, the Stark law, the Imtala law. It's very, very important. So these are the things, again, that make having a private practice almost impossible these days. And the last bit of bureaucratic bureaucratic crap that I've got here for you is the fact that the ICD-10, which is really put out by the American Medical Association that makes the coding, is now coming out with new medical codes for COVID-19 immunization status. And they have been added to the United States. One code is for being, quote, unvaccinated for COVID-19, unquote. That code, quote, may be assigned when the patient has not received at least one dose of any COVID-19 vaccine. The U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, stated in a document outlining the codes. The goal of the codes is, quote, to track people who are not immunized or only partially immunized, according to the CDC. So let me ask you all, what do you think they're going to be tracking you for? Do you think they're going to track you to see if you're sicker than um, than people who are vaccinated? Well, I think not because they haven't done that and they could have been doing that for the last three years. Uh, they, they aren't uh, concerned about your health. If they were, they would have been tracking us for the last few years. So they've never done that. So what do you think this tracking is going to be used for? Okay. They're treating non-vaccinated as if it's hazardous exposure and therefore merits being recorded as a medical exposure, said Dr. Harvey Rich. So being non-vaccinated is a medical exposure now. Geez, what they do with the language. That's never been done to my knowledge, he said. The CDC did not respond to requests for comment on this article. The proposal was backed by meeting participants during the International Classification of Diseases. The, that's the ICT, ICD-10, or Coordinated Group, which is, I think, mainly, it's the government, but it really is the AMA influencing the government or vice versa. I definitely think we would we would support this. A supervisor at Trinity Health said, "We are currently seeing physician documenting seeing physicians documenting unimmunized for COVID nineteen in our records." Jeannie Yoder, representing the Defense Health Agency, envisioned adding additional codes later to indicate if a person was not vaccinated against each successive variant. Who are these people? And do they think nothing nefarious will be done with these with this data? I mean, I don't, I don't know what world they live in. They can't be stupid, so they have to be evil. They can't believe that these are going to be done for good things. And maybe there might have been good intentions, but we all know what the road to hell is paved with. And um, these organizations, by the way, that just made these statements supporting this idea of having codes for unvaccinated, 
did not respond to requests for comment or, or decline inquiries either. Uh, I think it would be a good idea to be able to indicate that for whatever reason, the vaccine was refused. Valerie Bicca, a clinical documentation specialist at Nemours AI DuPont Hospital, during the meeting that featured the code proposals. I know that we tracked that for families where they've refused to vaccinate their children for one reason or another. And certainly we've tried to re-educate and keep trying to find opportunities to give the vaccines. Dr. Robert Malone, who all of you know, if you don't know him, shame on you, who first highlighted the codes on his Substack blog, said that the new codes were concerning in light of how not being vaccinated has been used during the pandemic to deny patient healthcare services such as organ transplants. That information will end up in the hands of insurers who will use it to make decisions about what you're going to have to pay for your insurance. Dr. Rich again also added that information could be used to perform analysis on groups of de-identified data, but question whether it would remain de-identified. No shit. Given how little we trust government agencies at this point and how stigmatizing, potentially stigmatizing this information is on individuals, nobody would rightly trust them to stay in their lanes about using this in grouped information as opposed to individual. What's to stop the government from sharing this information with other agencies, with the FBI, with the IRS? They say, well, we don't do that. And we say, we don't believe you. And if they did, what recourse would we have? They got it all backwards. The people that have health risks are the people who've been vaccinated. And those are the people that should be, should be followed and should be followed again, anonymously and individually. But I just, again, cannot possibly begin to express my distrust from my perch, just spending a lot of time online, a lot of time listening, a lot of time reading, a lot of time prepping for the podcast, I, I pick up this stuff. And, you know, I'd much rather be out throwing snowballs right now. We just got like six, seven inches of fresh snow or, you know, go out to a nice meal or do other things. But this is, this is so important. And I really, because I'm OCD, I can't just sort of close my eyes and walk away from it. Okay, so let's take a quick break and I'll be right back. So Bliss. Let's talk about one of our sponsors, Needed, and all their great products. Yeah, and I uh, hope you guys caught the episode with uh, with Julie, where we talk all about her birth and relationship and how she developed this company. Because, you know, Stu and I are really particular about how who we bring on to partner with. And Needed is an amazing company. And they have really put a lot of effort into making sure that you guys are getting amazing, good quality products. And we want to pass that on to you. One of the things that I really love about Needed's line, besides the attention to detail, is that they do have a powdered prenatal vitamin for those of you who, you know, maybe don't really like to take pills or are feeling nauseous. And it's something that you can add into a smoothie with beautiful collagen protein that they have available as well and and get you need and then they also have that amazing line of uh, men's products too and preconception partnering the preconception before you're actually even pregnant so and then what about this new product that they just came yeah out well you go, first of all go to this is needed.com and check out their whole menu of different yeah. items and, and pick out the ones that seem the, to fit your needs, but they have a new one. It's called egg quality support. It's for women considering getting pregnant and it combines five targeted and optimally dosed antioxidants to improve egg quality and support related fertility outcomes. This is one of the only egg quality products and the only egg quality support on the market that does not contain overlapping ingredients you'll find in a prenatal like folate. In addition, we've created our egg quality support plan to even further optimally nourish those trying to conceive. The egg quality support plan pairs our new egg quality support with our standalone CoQ10 in the active antioxidant form Ubiquinol. So try their new product and try all their old products and support them because they support us and go to uh, go to thisisneeded.com. Use the code word birthing instincts, all caps, and you'll save 20% off you know, one time order or the first three months subscription at thisisneeded.com, code word birthing instincts. Thanks needed. Thanks, Needed. Okay, we're back. I'm back. We're not back. <laughs> oh, Bliss is probably sleeping right now. Okay, so here's some letters and Google voices, which I'm not going to play because I'm just going to read, and some topics that I found interesting. And I, again, thank everybody for taking the time out of their day to send me these messages, birthinginstinctspodcast.com and or Google our Google Voice 
number, which I will repeat at the end of the podcast. And the reason I say that is because we want to make this podcast really interesting for people. And I know that there are a lot of you write me and ask me, did you do a podcast on cholestasis? Did you do a podcast on cervical exams? And unfortunately, we don't. We didn't really ever make a good, great spreadsheet for all the topics that we've covered. We've started to put the topics in the titles, but earlier on in the podcast history, I tried to just be clever. So you'd have to look through the show notes, and maybe someday, if Emily or somebody else wants to go through the podcasts and do a uh, categorize them, that would be a great service to us. Another thing, though, oh, I want to put out there is that I'm going to try to do a spreadsheet on breach providers, breach and twin providers that are out of the hospital in the country. So what I would like anybody listening to do is to share this information, birthinginstinctspodcast at gmail.com, with people to write me and let me know if they or someone they know in their community, what their community is, what the um, degree of the person, we're talking about a, a midwife, a licensed midwife, unlicensed midwife, a doctor, and whether they do breach and whether they do twins in and where they where they're located. So because I'm getting requests constantly from people in other parts of the country. Do you know anybody in you know North Carolina that's doing this? And I know that I've spoken to people, but I can never keep track of it. So I'm really going to try to keep track of it. And I really appreciate your help. Okay. So th this is a Google Voice from Amanda, and it starts out hi, Dr. Sue and Bliss. I love the fact that our trend robot makes a lot of errors. So anyway, I'll just, it's Dr. St I'm just going to correct him as we read. My name is Amanda. I wanted to call in and just get a bit, little bit of your input. I'm currently 35 weeks pregnant and first time mom. And I was just diagnosed with gestational hypertension because of some slightly elevated blood pressure. My blood pressure has never gone over 140 and has not gone over 90, which is awesome. Okay. So I'm going to stop there for a second and just say she was diagnosed with gestational hypertension. It's my understanding that the diagnosis of gestational hypertension is requiring two blood pressures at least six hours apart, greater than 140 over 90. So this is a very common thing. Now, I might be wrong, but I don't think so. But this is a very common thing that we have people getting labeled by overzealous or maybe ignorant practitioners who are labeling them with high-risk names, which then causes them more anxiety and more stress and potentially puts them more likely to become high risk. Uh, if they're worried about her blood pressures being higher than they were earlier in the pregnancy, that's one thing. But to call somebody, label them as gestationally hypertensive, I think was incorrect here. I've had no symptoms other than like super light sweaters, light sweats swelling on my hand. Okay, again, this is going to be the, our bot. But it typically goes away very quickly and they just scheduled me for a growth scan. In the next two weeks, oh, growth scan in the next two weeks. So I will be 37 weeks when I do the scan. And I would just say, look out, because if they've got you labeled as hypertensive and they do a scan, again, anything that is slightly away from the, from the mean is going to be considered a problem. If you're going to either have too much fluid or too little fluid, your baby's going to be in the 15th percentile, the 85th percentile, and they're going to look at that as a problem as opposed to being perfectly normal. I'm, curious, I'm just curious if those scans are common or routine. Well, we know what I think about the word routine, but yes, that's what they will do. When they, get, when they label you with a, a problem, they will then use more technology, and the technology will generally cause more problems. I just feel like they're almost like searching for something in order to, you know, induce me or get me to go to the hospital. Yeah, it's good intuition on your part. Again, sometimes they're right, but the frequency with which they've been wrong makes me, my first initial reaction is that whatever the, the, just like the government, whatever the mainstream medical doctor or maternal fetal medicine doctor is telling you is likely to be maybe not wrong, but a little overzealous. So I was just curious what your thoughts are on that. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to go ahead and decline my growth scan. I feel like at that point when I'm 37, 38 weeks, it almost feels kind of ridiculous to go forward with it, but I mean, I really don't know. So I love your input. I love your podcast. I love hearing you guys chat, my favorite part of the week. So today it's just me. <laughs> so thank you guys so much for everything you do. Bye. Thanks, Amanda. So maternal fetal medicine doctors are experts in abnormal birthing and in problems. And I really want to trust them, but since they're so quick to push interventions, it's hard to trust them. It's like the boy who cried wolf. So many of their interventions are unnecessary that when there's necessary ones, 
you know, the first inclination of someone like me or most of the midwives I work with and most of you listening is, is to be suspect. And probably that's healthy. And when you're ever in this predicament, if you think you're getting pushed into something you don't think is right, seek out a second opinion that's independent. Go talk to a different MFM, you know, consult with people online like me or maybe Nathan Riley or other people who, who have consulting services, Dr. Chavira here in Southern Cal. I'm sure there are people like that all over the country. So anyway, I do think that you really don't have hypertension. I think maybe you should maybe check your blood pressure a couple times at home to rule out the possibility of what's going to, what the next letter talks about, which is white coat syndrome. She writes, fair warning, this is a novel. This is from Alexis. And this was an email to birthinginstinctspodcast at gmail.com. Cut out some of it, but some of it's so important and so much leads to interventions that I think that this is right up our alley. Hope you find it interesting. She says, firstly, thank you both for providing such in-depth information and so many about so many topics. My cleaning days are so much more fun since I found your podcast. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I've had people tell us they listen to podcasts in very strange places. Truly informed consent is hard to come by, as well as good research. I have, I have my master's in library science, so I understand finding unbiased studies for the sake of information are difficult to find, particularly around birth. Well, that's great that you got a master's degree that actually taught you something. That's fantastic. I wanted to ask you both about my experience with my first pregnancy and birth and whether or not my feelings and beliefs about the care received was valid or just a series of medical interventions. She goes, this is Alexis, she goes, I started my pregnancy overweight as I have been my whole life, but I did not gain any weight, did not gain any gestational diabetes, get any gestational diabetes, but was told at 23 weeks that I was going to be treated as if I had gestational diabetes just because of my weight. Pausing for effect again. I didn't have issues besides a terrible bout of morning sickness, but otherwise I was fine. At 27 weeks, I was running late to my 15-minute checkup. From driving an hour and a half out of town, the office was at least a quarter mile walk from the parking lot to the office in the middle of summer. I don't handle heat very well and was visibly sweating. The nurse immediately shuffled me back and took my blood pressure. Okay, I'll tell everybody listening that if you feel like your blood pressure's up, if you feel stressed, if you just had an argument with the lady at the window or, or somebody down the street or, or were rushing in traffic, ask them to take your blood pressure at the end of the office visit or just decline having your blood pressure taken altogether that day. And it read 142 over 75. My normal is typically 125 to 132 over 70 to 78. They did not take the blood pressure again, but admitted me to labor and delivery for monitoring. Well, I'd forgotten that part. 142 over 75, no other symptoms. And they put her in labor and delivery. Overreaction people, you think? Upon being admitted, I was fitted with a cuff and monitored for a whole hour. The whole time, my blood pressure was 125 over 65. By the way, I'm shocked that the, going to the hospital didn't, didn't stress you out more. So this was strike one in their books, however, because you, I'd had a high elevated blood pressure. My doctor wanted a follow-up before my two-week visit, so I drove in the next week and my blood pressure was fine. However, the doctor told me that if I, quote, let, unquote, my blood pressure get high again, I will automatically be diagnosed with gestational hypertension. Okay, so just like the last lady. Even though you may not have the criteria, you're just going to be automatically diagnosed. These are experts in pregnancy care saying these things. I will not receive medicine to bring it down. Since, and since hypertension typically leads to preeclampsia, I would be induced at 37 weeks. Well, when I say I was shocked, I was stunned into silence. I am typically the first to advocate for myself. I am research-based, and I don't mind fighting with doctors because I don't believe they have my best interests at heart. So me being silent was not my consent to all this. She just walked out of the office that day. The following week at the normal two-week appointment, my blood pressure was slightly elevated again at 142 over 73 after running late in the middle of summer. Again, I don't do heat well and my anxiety was through the roof at the list of interventions from last time, lack of control, but also the doubt of, is my child going to die from high blood pressure? Am I just being stubborn? We went to L&D again and the blood pressure was 130 over 68. At this point, I was diagnosed with gestational hypertension. Yeah, this would fit into the dumb doctor dogma category, as most of my letters would, but this one starting to lean that way more intensely. And I was referred to the high-risk pregnancy center where they do ultrasounds weekly. So from 29 weeks onwards, I was going to the high-risk center to receive an ultrasound where the baby had to perform their tasks within five minutes or else. And the else was I was going to be admitted and scheduled for a C-section. Okay. You know, 
I know that everyone knows what I'm going to say here. Weekly ultrasounds are useless in, in this particular case. And if they're really worried about the baby for this woman, first of all, didn't have a high, didn't have hypertension. But secondly, if they're really worried about the baby, then they would do it twice weekly. And um, growth scans are only good. The error of a scan for growth is about at term is about every two to three weeks. You can't if you do a scan less than three weeks apart, that it's not statistically significant. So there's only one reason why they were doing weekly scans, and you know what that is. Everybody knows what that is. Is that they can bill for them, Doctor Stu. My daughter, being the obstinate, amazing kid she is, aced all of those ultrasounds. There was never any restricted blood flow. There was never any concern whatsoever. My blood pressure at home was fine. Oh, she did take it at home. My blood pressure at the high-risk center was perfect. But now, every time I went to the OB's office, I knew it was going to be elevated because I felt like I was going to be induced, have a scheduled C-section, and I felt completely helpless and disregarded. I hope you're all shaking your heads at home. This kind of treatment has to stop. It just has to stop. And you have to be able consumers to walk away from these sorts of people. I know it's inconvenient. I know it's hard. I know your insurance might give you a hard time. You just, you cannot stay with practitioners who treat you like this. At my 36-week appointment, I had a full-blown argument with the doctor about how I did not see a need to be induced at 37 weeks. And because of studies I presented to him with exact cases as mine, that I didn't feel I had hypertension. I felt I just had an overeager doctor. He had suggested I get the shot for the baby's lungs. Now we're talking at 36 weeks and he's talking about giving steroids. So he can induce the woman early for no reason, but had outright refused to give it to me if I didn't induce that in 37 weeks. So I'll give you the shot if you let me intervene upon you. If you don't let me intervene upon you, you'll probably go to term and be fine. So I won't give you the shot. I mean, is that the logic? He said I could develop preeclampsia even though there was no indication on the ultrasounds, no swelling, no headaches, no protein in my urine ever. He specifically yelled, you can die if this develops. Oh God, this is another Candace Owens moment. And in my complete distress, I told him, quote, I can die walking out the door or in a car accident. That doesn't mean I don't drive, unquote. That's correct. I should have walked out that door and found a new provider, but I was 36 weeks pregnant. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, your intuition to walk out and find a new provider was absolutely correct. And even if it meant seeing a midwife for the rest of your pregnancy, even though you want to deliver in the hospital and just showing up in the hospital and getting the doctor on call would have been better than having this guy because the midwife would have kept you healthy and made sure that you didn't develop a problem, would have reassured you, would have brought you down from that height, that edge of the fence you were sitting on with your anxiety, you would have probably done great. But she says, now I'll shorten the story to a bit, say I was induced at 37 weeks. So she, she succumbed to the pressure and I was not happy whatsoever about it. My husband and I decided that being so far away from medical services, she mentioned an hour and a half, we were unsure of the outcome if something were to happen. Again, I'm not sure that what could have happened being an hour and a half away when you're first time mom, not in labor. Um, and by that, we, I mean him. I guess she means her husband. Oh boy. My induction had three rounds of Cytotec, only one centimeter dilated. Shocker, she says. The trauma of the Foley, bullow, Foley bulb, horrific and barbaric, and I was coerced into an epidural. I pushed on my back and didn't eat anything for nearly 40 hours. And guess what happened? Okay, let's find out. She says, I believe I was misdiagnosed and my very real anxiety was completely dismissed. I was told that white coat syndrome isn't real, so they're not going to consider that a factor. All this leads to so many interventions that let me completely set up for postpartum depression and anxiety and failed breastfeeding because I wasn't allowed to take my daughter off the blue lights to feed her because she was jaundiced. I feel like I had obstetric abuse, but I'm unsure how to vocalize just what that abuse was. Okay, I'm not sure. Did she have a vaginal delivery or did she have a C-section? Well, it sounds like she might have had a vaginal delivery. I think otherwise she would have ended it with a cesarean section. She's got really good points that she makes here and a really, a really sad, awful story. She asks, what would you have done during my pregnancy with a patient that presented with high blood pressure a couple times, but not anywhere else? Okay. I wouldn't even have mentioned it probably because those blood pressures were not that high. They were not high enough to cause me concern. If they were starting to cause me a concern, I would sit down and we would talk about diet, we would talk about lifestyle, we would talk about stress reduction, we would talk about all those things to get her pregnancy to be prolonged. My midwives may have some herbal or homeopathic remedies. I would talk about massage therapy, I would talk about acupuncture, I would talk about all kinds of things to help restore normal. Uh, she also asked, I want a home birth with my next child, and I hesitate to tell midwives my first pregnancy story because I don't want to be denied. I can tell you that your midwife will be a sympathetic ear, and you should tell your midwife and always be honest with a provider that you trust. 
uh, keeping secrets from your provider is not a good idea because um, if that is a problem for her, what happened in your first pregnancy, then she's not the right practitioner for you and, and, and you need to move on. Find somebody who's more secure. And then lastly, she says, even though I'm overweight, I eat and exercise a nutrient-dense diet. If I eat right and exercise, why am I considered high-risk just because of my weight? You're not. But it is listed as a high-risk, a high BMI, I think over 34 or 35, is just one of those algorithmic reasons that people are listed as high-risk. Same thing over 35, same thing small pelvis, you know, who knows? So again, the term high-risk is bandied about. Uh, it does. It has very little meaning, and you have to let that one kind of roll off your back. And again, try to find a practitioner who doesn't consider that to be an issue. Okay, it's you know, overweight people have vaginal deliveries all the time. You know, you might be higher risk if you ended up having to have a surgical birth because the recovery for that person is a little bit more difficult. There's more likely to have a wound infection and other things like that. So, you know. The best thing for somebody who's overweight to do is to have a vaginal birth spontaneously on their own terms, probably not in the hospital. Okay, take another break for a second. I'll be right back. One of our great sponsors is Element. That's L-M-N-T. It's a tasty electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. As Bliss likes to say, none of the BS. It's got uh, lots of salt, no sugar. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. And it's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. But as we always say, it's great for laboring moms. It's great for birth workers. It's great for birth workers who happen to be in the tropics. Uh, I'm planning to take uh, my element with me to my trip in Haiti, where it's going to be hot and sweaty every day. And I'm going to be using that. It's easy to pack. It comes in these small little packets, which make the weight and uh, packing it in your little tiny backpack suitcase. Pretty easy thing to do. Comes in multiple flavors. My favorite, of course, is the raspberry salt, but it comes in grapefruit salt, watermelon salt, citrus salt, orange salt, raw unflavored mango chili, lemon habanero, and chocolate salt. It's got, again, no processed foods in it. It's really healthy for you. A lot of athletes, professional athletes use it. You might have seen some of their commercials on Instagram. We support them because they support us. And if you go to Drink Element, that's Drink L-M-N-T, Dot com and use the code word birthing instincts or backslash birthing instincts, you will get a free sample pack with every order. That's drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts for a free sample pack with every order. Thanks very much. Thanks, Element. Okay, a couple more letters and we'll wrap it up for the day. I hope you, hope you find you guys have found this worthy of listening to. Again, with Bliss's I travel schedule, this is just one of those things that's going to happen. I mean, I I'm lucky in the in the this coming year. I think I'm going to be in Ireland in October, and I'm going to be in Australia in November. Uh, so you know, we want to get a podcast out to you every week, but and we're going to continue to do as best we can. But sometimes we're going to have to do these solo shots. So I'm waiting for Bliss to do one when I'm uh, off in the jungle someplace. Okay, so this letter is titled "Best Podcast Ever." I have to read that because it's it's. Not true. I would think that that would be some misinformation, but you know what? That is probably, in her opinion, true. And therefore, I am very grateful to Anne from Boston, who writes, writes Dear Bliss and, and Stu. I like that. I'm just Stu now. I'm not Sue. I'm not Dr. Sue. It's not, and she's not writing to Goddess Bliss or Wise Goddess Bliss. It's just Bliss and Stu. You know what? We're fellow travelers. Calling us by our first names is absolutely fine. I mean, you know, professionally, I'm Dr. Fishbein, but on the podcast. That's, this is great. I wanted to write to thank you for your amazing podcast. With my second baby, I switched to a home birth at 28 weeks after feeling like the hospital. And she says it's Brigham and Women's in Boston. Just wasn't right for me. I was declining all Doppler readings and most ultrasounds and my doctor didn't know how to palpate or use a fetoscope. Oh my God. Okay. I forgot about that part. Um, yeah. Well, they don't know how to do breach or twins or forceps either. So, you know, again, it's all about technology. I, you know, I don't know. They don't know how to palpate anymore. Midwives are experts at palpation. They can tell me things that I pride myself on being pretty good at it, but they're better than me. And a fetoscope, I mean, how to use a fetoscope. That's like, that's like how to use a fork. I mean, it's, it's something like <laughs> you put it in your ears and you put it on the belly and you listen. My God, the seven minute appointments were just them weighing me and me peeing in a cup. Useless. 
My amazing doula nudged me to do a home birth. I must admit that my husband and I were slightly uncomfortable with the idea of home birth at first, but my amazing midwife suggested I listen to your podcast. All the data and information you bring to listeners had me 10,000% convinced it was the right option by the end of pregnancy. You know, I'd like to say something about that. Uh, every now and then we get some nasty mail from people who say that, you know, my daughter or my 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 wife or my sister or somebody listened to your podcast and she chose to do this and she had a really bad outcome and it's your fault. And they're really vicious about it sometimes. Um, I've been called scum and a lot worse. And I'll tell you that one of the things that we talk about, Bliss and I, all the time is that we accept uncertainty. That's the midwifery model of care. There is no certainty. And people that are people that are, think they're going to the hospital and are certain that they're going to have a good, good outcome are just not paying attention. Bad outcomes happen in the hospital all the time. And somehow these people seem to think that if it happened in the hospital and it was a bad outcome, it must have been the only thing that could have possibly happened. Not thinking that it could have been iatrogenic. But I'm happy to put this out there and let you guys decide what's right for you. And if somebody decides that having a home birth based on what we're saying is a good idea and the outcome isn't good, well, okay, you can blame me for that. But that's that's just pushing off your um, or projecting your own anger onto somebody else. And you should try to use more constructive uh, um, manners in the future. Anyway, I digressed. Not to mention that my OB last appointment, I measured 25 centimeters at 28 weeks. My OB suggested an ultrasound for fear of small baby that I declined because my gut said everything was fine. I never saw that OB again. When my midwife measured me every two to three weeks throughout my third trimester, I was always three to five centimeters behind. Then she always palpated for fluid pockets and the baby and determined the baby was growing great and all was well. Can you imagine OB telling a woman that all was well when measuring five centimeters behind without an ultrasound? No, I cannot. I don't even know that I, I don't even know that I would be comfortable doing that because of my role as consultant and stuff like that. But I, I know that midwives are amazing. This is an amazing thing. And sure enough, at 41 weeks and one day, my gorgeous baby boy was born at home after three hours of labor. Holy moly. 50th percentile, eight pounds, two ounces. Okay. So bundle height, not necessarily relating to the size of the baby. Some women just package their babies differently. And if you trust your, if you're at good skills and you trust your palpation, you trust your judgment and a woman trusts her intuition, that's probably equally or more effective than the use of ultrasound. They've actually shown that estimated fetal weights by ultrasound are no better than somebody who's skilled at palpation. So here palpation went out and midwives are amazing. She says, midwives are amazing. Fundal height is stupid. I got to circle that. That's kind of a good statement. I like that. Thank you for providing the information and encouragement I needed to follow through on my home birth. My life and my sons are forever changed. My husband said he could now he couldn't imagine doing birth any other way now. Well, thank you, Anne. That's great. And let's see. Okay, I hope everybody has time for two more. All right, this one is from Google Voice uh, from Courtney. Again, I'm going to try to read read the translation of it uh, from the bot. Hi, Dr. Stu and Midwife Bliss. My name is Courtney, and I'm a listener to your podcast. Firstly, I want to say thank you for all the information that you share to help not only moms, but also birth workers and the, and the about the true nature of pregnancy and birth. It's been so insightful and helpful to me as a first-time mom and a mom planning to have more kiddos. Again, that's a really important question, by the way, that we talk about. And I want to emphasize that one more time, that when you see a first-time physician and they start dealing with your history of this pregnancy, and they want to start doing interventions, one of the things they never ask you is, do you want more children? Because ultimately, as you know, my mantra is that all that matters is a baby in the bassinet, a live baby in the bassinet, actually. And how that baby gets there doesn't really matter to the medical model. It might matter to the individual doctor, and I'm not berating them, but they're stuck in a model where it, it just sucks. But you know, the idea that you as a mom or you as a family are are thinking, yeah, I want two, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, or Marin Green, number 10 kids, you have to think about that when the choices you make in your very first pregnancy. So my question for you guys is, are there any any resources for non-birth workers or pregnant women in terms of what they can do to have a breech baby? To have a breech baby? I think I misread that earlier. I know there are a lot of interventions like spinning babies. Oh, in order to have a breech delivery. Okay. Not that she wanted one, but if you get one, okay. Duh. Again, trying to translate from these bots is very difficult. 
I know there are a lot of interventions like spinning babies or manual options to help promote baby getting into a head down position, but that's not always the case or the way that nature intends for those babies to be born. That's correct. That is absolutely correct, Courtney. So in Instead of, you know, maybe the first thing being directed to go to a hospital, there are things in order to have a home birth with a breech baby that moms can do or alert about before that happens. Thank you so much for answering my question. Okay, so this is right up my alley. Um, so what she's asking is if a baby happens to be breech at term, what can you do to make sure that you get a vaginal birth out of it? Well, first, you need you don't need to do all those intense things that that women are assigned to do in a world where the only option is cesarean. And that that's like chiropractic Webster technique. Not that that's bad for you anyway. It's always good for your pelvis to do that. But you don't have to do that. You don't have to go to spinning babies. You don't have to do the acupuncture, the moxibustion, or the inversions in the swimming pool and all that stuff. It starts to drive you crazy after a while. If you have somebody that's competent in, in breach delivery, finding somebody willed and skilling is, I mean, skilled and willing is always going to be the tougher part. But if you have somebody like that, then that person needs to make an assessment of whether this baby in your in your belly is in the proper position, proper size, flexed head, you know, all the other things that are go on with my criteria that I use nine of them. But if you meet those criteria, then the outcomes of a vaginal breech birth in skilled hands are very, very similar to the outcome of a head down birth in skilled hands. There's really very little difference. To quote the Royal College of OBGYN, the risk of a neonatal death in a head-down vaginal delivery is about one in a thousand, and the risk is about one in five hundred in a term breach vaginal delivery. So even though that's twice greater risk, it's a ninety-nine point nine versus a ninety-nine point eight percent chance of it not happening. And so for most people, that that's very reassuring that that's not what they're going to hear in the medical model. So the answer to your question, Courtney, is find someone skilled, even if you have to cross state lines or travel or pay out of pocket or do whatever you have to do, because that first baby is so very important. Because if you have a C-section for that first baby, then you're putting all your future babies, not, not to mention yourself, at greater risk, including and, and even including that baby because of the potential effects on the epigenetics and microbiome of babies being born by electively scheduled C-sections. So yeah, I hope that answers that question. That's an easy one for me. And then lastly, question from Brittany in Colorado Springs. And this was submitted to me directly uh, through my email. And she says, hello, I've been hearing stories lately of women who've had experienced uterine rupture and subsequent hysterectomies during birth. I understand that there is a much greater risk with a VBAC or with the use of Pitocin during labor. What is your experience in the home birth community with uterine rupture? I was able to find statistics on the risk of uterine rupture during undisturbed home births. Okay. I don't know that there's great data on undisturbed home birth uterine rupture. I just know that it's very rare. I can give you some general numbers. The overall risks, which we talk about all the time, are about one in 200 of a previous single low transverse scar from a C-section separating. And about one out of six to one out of 20 of those babies will suffer a catastrophic injury. So the actual risk is going to be somewhere between one in 1,200 to one in 2,400. That's not right. One in 20 times uh, one in 4,000, excuse me. Yeah. So between one in 1,200 to one in 4,000, it's going to be the risk of having a very, very bad outcome. Um, the idea that you might have less chance of rupturing at home is possible because you're not going to be getting any sort of stimulation to your uterus. You're not going to be numbed up with an epidural, which makes, takes away some sensation of you possibly feeling something changing inside. So I don't know that there's any data on that, but common sense to di would dictate to me that if it happens, it's less likely to happen at home. And then people will always say, well, if it happens at home, you don't have emergency help immediately available. That's true. You're going to have, if it happens and you're one of those one in 1200 or whatever that has a really bad outcome, it's going to be a really bad outcome and that's more likely. But hospitals also do not have emergency help immediately available as much as you think. There are some hospitals that can possibly get you in the labor room, excuse me, in the delivery room, get you anesthetized, get the baby out in 15 minutes. But most hospitals are going to take much longer than that. And if you have a true uterine rupture with baby extruded into the abdomen or placental separation, your baby doesn't have that long. And so the outcome is going to be bad no matter what you do. And that's one of those things. Now, uh, the chance of an 
unscarred uterus rupturing is quoted in the literature is about one in 6,000. I've never seen that. And I have not had a home birth with a uterine rupture. We had one or two where we thought it might be because of mom's symptoms. And we went to the hospital and they did C-sections on those moms and they did not find a uterine rupture when they went inside. Sometimes they found a window, sometimes they found nothing. But because the mother had these symptoms of suprapubic pain that had changed in consistency and character and was more constant, that's one of the symptoms that can occur. But, you know, most uterine ruptures occur without any of the major symptoms. They occur suddenly before you have anything. So the, the symptoms of shoulder pain or suprapubic pain or fetal heart rate changes, those, those are less present less than 50% of the time when, when you have a uterine rupture. And the last thing I'll say is about myomectomies. A lot of people will say that they had a myomectomy, their doctor said they need to have a C-section because their uterus could rupture. And that is true if you had what's called a transmural myomectomy or a fiber that's gone like through and through in the fundal portion of the uterus. And I have experienced one of those. I was actually on call once out in hospital in Oxnard and a woman from Malibu was getting airlifted there. She wasn't my client, but her doctor was a friend of mine. And he called me and said that my client's being airlifted to you. Can you take care of her? And when she got there, we were able to save her and her uterus, but her baby was already passed away. And it was a very tragic and sad event. But that was from a fibroid surgery. And funny, she was only like 37 and a half weeks. She was probably, I think she was scheduled to have a repeat, I mean, not scheduled, to have a primary C-section in, in the following week. So nothing, as we said earlier in the podcast, you have to, if you're going to do this work, you have to accept uncertainty. And if you can't accept Except uncertainty, you shouldn't be doing this work. Unfortunately, the medical model prides itself on trying to control all uncertainty in healthcare and in obstetrics. And in, by doing so, they cause far more problems than they, than they solve. And that's the opinion of this person who has been around for a really long time. So I'll take a deep breath. I will say that I missed having Bliss here. I hope you did too. And that she'll be back next week with me. In the meantime, uh, your comments, emails, other things are welcome. Yeah, our Google Voice number is 805-399-0439. And our email where you can email us, birthinginstinctspodcast at gmail.com. Please support our sponsors, Element and Needed, and soon to be our new sponsor, Branch Basics. We love their products. Again, we're very discriminating about which products we promote. And we love them because they support us and that allows us to get the podcast to you. So until next time for everybody, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.